Hello, I'm Cheryl Meyer, and this, and I'm otherwise known as Cheryl M. Healthviews. And what my goal is, is to inspire you to lead a healthier life. So when I proposed my podcast, I proposed that we present it in two different segments. The first one is It Feels Good to Feel Good, Future Proof Your Health, where I get to share everything I have learned to return my health back to relative wellness and to live a pain-free life in spite of the fact that I have autoimmune disease. But the second part of my podcast is this episode, and that's Tell Me Your Story The Health Muse is In. My concept was this is it's all fine and well that you hear me tell my story, but I get a lot of it's all fine and well that it worked for you, but it's not going to work for me. And I wanted you to hear that there are lots of people out there that have made changes in their lifestyle that have supported their health and brought them back to wellness. We all have a couple things in common. We all owned our own health. Whatever the doctor was suggesting we did was going on on a parallel path to us making these lifestyle changes where we did things that cleaned up our toxic load. We all pay attention to our body. You'll hear jazz in the background because I want you to listen to the rhythm of your health and I want you to pay attention to what your body is telling you. My body had been trying to tell me that I was gonna topple over into toxic load for some time. I just wasn't listening. So if you clean up your lifestyle and if you listen to your body, you have a very good chance, not of being deprived in any way, but returning to feeling darn good. And that's what these podcasts are really all about. So thank you for joining me. This is gonna be a Tell Me Your Story, The Health Muse is In episode, and I hope you enjoy it. And I hope that we all inspire you to lead a healthier, happier life. Thank you. Welcome to another edition of Tell Me Your Story, The Health Muse is Here. And as you know, we've been doing a series of podcasts about depression, which is on the rise worldwide, and then suicide, which is particular, it's the number two cause of death now with teenagers. And so I've been concentrating a lot of information because I don't want you to miss the signs. And I don't want you to miss all the different options that you have if someone you love is going through depression so that you can maybe catch it and get them to talk or get them to help. Well, our guest this morning has a very different story, but it is connected to depression and to suicide where her husband committed suicide. But the circumstances were very unusual. And I think you'll be quite fascinated with Janet's story and what she's taken out of her tragic situation to find her mission to help others. So I'm very excited to have her here today. And I wanna introduce you to Janet Grillo. I'm gonna read her bio quickly for you so that you get the gist and then I'm gonna turn the ball over to her. Janet Grillo believes in new beginnings. After her husband died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, Janet had to pick up the pieces of her shattered life, embrace her faith, and learn how to live again. Now she is a suicide advocate. She finds comfort, peace, and joy in helping others who have also been have experienced the ravages of suicide in a family or a friend's life. She's the founder of the nonprofit Journey of Hope Survivors, Inc., an organization that helps those who have suffered a tragedy. Plans include being the host of the podcast Victims to Victory. Janet will interview doctors, suicide activists, influencers, and others. The CEO of Veteran Suicide Awareness, Janet, is also a veteran suicide awareness flag corrector, which has received national attention. A Wilmington, Delaware native, she moved to Vieira, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm -hmm. Florida yeah. in 2014, and now calls that home. She has four sisters, a daughter, and one granddaughter. And her organization, I will put right under this podcast, is veteransuicideawareness.org. 
Welcome, Janet. I am so thrilled to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure to talk with you for sure. So your story caught my attention. Janet and I used to work for the same company years ago. And when I saw her on LinkedIn, that was originally the reason that I was reaching out to her. And then I saw that she also was very involved with suicide. And I was in the middle of recording all my podcasts on depression and suicide. So we got together, we had a chat, we caught up. Her story is riveting, which is why I invited her to be a guest today. So take it away. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, as Cheryl was saying, my story is different from everyone else's story. And I actually put it in a book. Let me just show you my book here. Here, I've got it uh, right here. Oh, you got it here? Oh, okay. God here promised go. me wings to fly, life for survivors after suicide. So when I say, I say that everyone has a story, but they don't feel that their story is worth being told. And my story is totally different from everyone else's story. My story is, is that on December 13th, 2001, my husband died tragically. To this day, I don't know if it was a suicide, assisted suicide, suggested suicide or murder, because after he died, I found out that he was a li living a double life with numerous affairs and alleged connections to the Philadelphia Mafia. So allegedly, I was a Mafia wife and I didn't know it. At the time, I had my own business as a fine jewelry and diamond broker, and I was ripping in gold and diamonds, so I sure played the role, even though I didn't know I was playing the role, as far as that's concerned. Um, my husband's family, 55 family members, walked away from me after the last shovel of dirt was pitched on his grave. So I was left alone by myself trying to figure out who this man was that I was married for 15 years. Like, who was this man who called me twice a day and told me that he loved me? I didn't have a clue. And so as a result of that, um, you know, when I found out the news on that, I fell into, uh, first I went into a state of shock. Then I fell into a state of depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal thoughts all on my own. And I just, uh, Janet was nowhere to be found. And so I just um, brought up into a fetal position. I didn't know. I, uh, I was scared and I just kind of took life one day at a time. And then one day I realized that I couldn't do that anymore, that I had to do something. But it, there were many, it wasn't that easy. There were many factors that came into play, you know, when that happened. So the anxiety attacks come on people when you least expect it. If anyone has ever had an anxiety attack, you know that it's more like an out-of-body experience. Your mind is nowhere to be found and you are not uh, capable of even knowing what your body is going through. It's almost like a spasm or something like that. But I found myself having an uh, anxiety attack one day when I was driving my car. The uh, song by Lionel Richie came on, Hello, and that was my husband's and my favorite song. So. I don't know how I ended up in the church parking lot. And I sat there just in total shock, probably for about an hour, looking at the church and looking at the rectory and not knowing where to go. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go into the church and pray. And, but God had a different plan. He ended up leading me to the rectory instead. So I went over to the rectory. I banged on the door like a crazy woman begging for help. And someone came to the door and said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. There's no one here. And I collapsed in the doorway. The Monsignor came running over to me. He was preparing to leave for an appointment and certainly canceled it when he saw this disheveled looking woman sitting at his door or laying on the ground actually, and invited me in and then talked to me for about three hours. Uh, my husband was Catholic and I was not, but I practiced Catholicism with him. And so the Monsignor told me about some RCIA classes. So the RCIA classes are rites of Christian initiation classes. They are classes that adults attend in preparation to become a Catholic. And he was honest and he said, I don't know if this is your answer, but it's a good place to start. Trust was a huge factor for me because I didn't know who to trust at all. Certainly not his family, that was for sure. So I ended up going, walking into the class. There were 12 other people that were there. Uh, some of them were broken like me. 
and others uh, had told about God's amazing stories, the miracles that God had done in their life. And my response was, is I, I need to have some of that. So it was good because it took months and months for that to happen. And that's the first place where I found trust and being a part of something that was bigger than myself, uh, thinking I knew about God and I had, didn't have a clue because in the past I had gone to God only when I needed him in a sense, you know, help me do this or help me do that. And then when he wouldn't respond, I wonder, well, where in the heck are you? Because God was nowhere to be found. And so I ended up uh, becoming a Catholic and sitting perpetual adoration at the church. Perpetual adoration is um, something that the Catholics do where we actually have an opportunity to sit one-on-one -on -one with the Blessed Sacrament. So every Thursday from 11 a.m. to 12 noon, I would sit in the chapel one-on-one -on -one with God. And then I started to write in a journal. And in the journal, I would simply write, Dear God, hear my prayers. And then after about six months, I wondered what God would say to me. So I turned to the back of the journal and wrote, Dear Janet on the top and love God on the bottom. I said, uh, empty lines waited patiently while I waited anxiously to see if it was crazy or profound. And about after a half an hour, my, heart, my hand began to move. I truly was not aware of what I was writing. But the interesting thing about the letters from God, well, first, I didn't ask him to write to me often because sometimes I just didn't want to know what he was going to say. But the interesting thing is when I reread those letters, it doesn't matter if the letter was written, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, God's words are always for the present. So I could read it today. So even if I have times where I question things or I need a little encouragement, I can read God's letter to me like it was yesterday. And I actually, in my book, I share letters that I wrote to God and I share letters that he wrote back to me. I know that you've had a chance to read a little bit of my book, Cheryl. So what have you discovered in the few pages that you've had an opportunity to read? Well, what I love about, and I haven't read that far, but what I love is how authentic you are in the book. It, you know, you're reading about a tragedy, but it's very soothing to read it because you're so honest. So anybody who has gone through a tragedy, your book gives them a place to ground themselves and your story is amazing. And what you were doing, um, it's called automatic writing. And that's how, as I had talked when we first chatted, the Book of Miracles mm -hmm. was written, which was wildfire across the country. A lot of people have taken Marianne Williamson's Course in Miracles, which is God speaking to everybody now. Um, it's not 2,000 years ago, but it's not in conflict in any way with Christ's teachings. It's completely in parallel. It's just more modern. And that's what I was finding with your writings as well. Well, it's good. I actually wrote my book in 2018. And so uh, after I wrote it, well, the interesting thing is, let's kind of go back, because I actually wrote a book uh, 15 years ago called My Victory Journal. And so when I moved to Florida in 2014, I thought, okay, now it's my time and I'm going to publish my book, My Victory Journal. So I connected with a company called Bradley Communications out of Philadelphia uh, because they're a, a marketing company. So I had the opportunity to work with coaches there. But my first coach asked me, she said, why did you write this book? And I gave her two answers that she didn't like. And she screamed into the phone and said, why did you write this book? And I said, well, I don't know. I guess I want people to realize that there's life after suicide. She says, well, that's the title of your book. I go, it's the title of what book? She says, the book you're going to write. And I was said, well, what about my Victory Journal book? She says, oh, don't worry. That'll be uh, written, you know, but your story has to be told and it has to be told now. So one of my favorite quotes that I created, in, and it's in my book, it says, in God's silent words, he promised me wings to fly. Come hell or high water, I'm going to hold him to his promise. So she said that uh, we're going to title the book, There is Life After Suicide, and subtitle it, God Promised Me Wings to Fly. The very next day, I worked with another coach, and, and she was uh, worked with a woman by the name of Ann McAdoo, and she... Um, and Ann McAdoo was Tony Robbins' creative director. 
So the first words out of her mouth is, we're changing the title of your book. And I go, I haven't even started writing it. I'm like, what? what are you doing? I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know what I'm going to write. Where, where do I even begin? But she said, we're going to change the title of your book to God Promised Me Wings to Fly, subtitled There is Life After Suicide. So after I got off the phone, I just was like, what the heck? You know, like I thought my life was all prepared and I was ready to go and I'm doing my victory journal. And no, that wasn't the case at all. And so I think I remember drawing a bath of very hot water and having alcoholic beverage and sitting in there with candles wondering, where do I even begin with all of this? But I ended up writing the book. And when I did write the book, um, I self-published it in 2018. And then I had the opportunity to uh, meet someone at, in, in New York, who connected me with uh, Terry Whalen. And Terry Whalen was the, um, uh, he wrote Billy Graham's autobiography, and he is also uh, an acquisitions manager with Morgan James Company. So I said to him that I have two books that I wanted to do. And I said, and at that point, I said, okay, now I'm ready for my victory journal. So I said, can you do me a favor and read it before I spend thousands of hours editing and doing everything that I want to do? Can you uh, just read it and tell me yes or no or whatever? So Terry said, well, send me my victory journal and then also send me the God promised me wings to fly. And so they had someone who was responsible for the faith division. So he came back two weeks later and he said that the uh, person that read it, who's also an acquisition manager, uh, said that he loves both of your books, but he really loves the God Promise Me Wings to Fly. So he said, which one do you want to publish first? So I actually have two contracts with Morgan James Publishing. So I thought, well, since it, God Promised Me Wings to Fly, and I never really had the opportunity to do the marketing that I would go with that. So um, Terry connected me with a woman, Ginger Kobaba, who was, and she was my editor. Uh, Ginger made me go from a good writer to a great writer. So I had sent my book to her and she read it and she says, okay, the first thing we're gonna do is you're gonna forget about chapters one, two, and three. We're gonna start with chapter four is you're gonna rewrite it in the first person. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. And I go, whoa, my God, you gotta be kidding me. So it was like eating an elephant, a huge elephant, which we broke down by chapters, one chapter at a time. And so in writing it in the first person, and I actually did that in 2001, my stepfather, who was 91 years old, he says, oh, my God, you've got to have, write another book. He says, I hope I'm alive to see it. So I, knowing him with his age, the way that he was, I rushed pen to paper and I actually rewrote my book in the first person. It took me seven months. I dedicated my book to him and he was able to see it. And then a few months later, he died. So the timing on that was really good for doing that. But uh, in writing my book in the first person, it was very challenging, number one. You had to kind of reconstruct what happened 20 years ago in regards to that. But in addition to that, in writing it and putting it in first person, I had to relive it. So it was very difficult to do that. But I feel that when people read my book, like you're saying, I'm very authentic in there. Uh, when I wrote my book, it was written from my heart. And, and the story is true. So I'm, I believe that as when people read it, they will find a little bit of themselves in each chapter and know that we all go, all have been there. We have all fallen to our knees. You know, we wondered, how do we find hope in a hopeless situation? How can we trust again? Where do we go from here? And I realized that um, when I tried to heal myself, I didn't get anywhere. You know, or I kept taking a baby step forward and a giant step backward. And it wasn't until I brought God into my life and truly believed that he was there that I felt comfort and I didn't have any fear at all. And that's the main thing is if you bring God into your life, you will heal faster. If you don't make him a part of your plan, you're going to struggle. Eventually, you'll find him even though you think that he's not there. But if he had answered me in my lowest point, you know, when I was in a fetal position, when I was uh, uh, lying on the floor and, cry and crawling like a snake because I couldn't even get up, you know, uh, because I was, would vomit on myself and lay there 
seems for days with that. If he had answered me then, I went like, yeah, really. Like if he said, oh, this, 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 and this, these great things are all going to happen. And, you know, if you're laying there at your weakest point, you don't believe anything at all. So I just took baby steps, you know, trying to believe in the things that we cannot see and just hope that there was a God at that point would be challenging it, hoping that there was a God and hoping that uh, he was taking care of me because I couldn't do it on my own. I would love for you to tell a little bit. One of the things I found very interesting at the beginning of the book is you talk about it as you were there, step by step, from the point mm-hmm. of not having any idea whatsoever what the no. reality was that you were living in to finding out that your husband was dead, right up to the celebration that you had the night before with him and cooking mm-hmm. this fabulous dinner that you were going to have the night that he committed suicide. Um, and the total misbelief that the life you'd been leading for 15 years wasn't completely real. So I want you to explain a little bit to that, because I think people, there are people out there who would resonate with that, who have no idea. And it ends up his double life left you completely kind of aghast with no foundation to anchor yourself to at the point that he well, it, it, it left me empty. So uh, and that's what I said with Ginger. She brought things out in me that I didn't know I have. So um, in starting, we started the night before because the, the day before he died, uh, it seemed like a normal day. You know, let us go out to dinner. You know, I noticed that he was having a lot of issues at work and I didn't know, but I knew that he was under pressure. So I really thought, let me do something special for him. And so I... Uh, the best thing that I could cook was his mother's spaghetti gravy, as they call it, spaghetti meatballs. And that's uh, something that you like to cook, and it smells like Italy, you know, while you're cooking it and everything. And so I went out, and I bought flowers, and I brought out the china and the crystal, even though it was spaghetti and meatballs, I didn't care. It was still going on the china and everything. Set a beautiful table, and then at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I got a phone call from my husband saying, oh, I want to take you out to dinner tonight. And I go, but I, I really fixed a really nice meal for us. He goes, well, we can eat it this weekend. We'll just invite people over. He said, but I really want to take you out to dinner. I want to do something nice. for you. And so, you know, I put everything on hold. He came home and he was uh, surprised to see that I had gone so far with the flowers and the crystals and the tablecloth, and, you know, and everything else. And he felt bad about that. But still, we went out to dinner. And so uh, we went to a place, we stopped by a liquor store to see a friend uh, who we had actually gone on three wine tours with. And uh, John had talked to us about an upcoming wine trip in the following October. And Tony said, yep, we're there, just count us in. Everything is great, you know, nothing surprising. You know, we talked about, oh my gosh, this is gonna be great, we're gonna go. Uh, back to Italy, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You know, we went to uh, the restaurant and we didn't have a reservation, but we sat at the bar, but he um, he would have a tendency to drink a lot, you know? I mean, so I think that night he would have two martinis and we had two glasses of wine. And then we went home and then the next morning um, he got up early, earlier than normal. And I caught him as he was leaving to go out the door to go to work. And he was dressed in very old clothes, which was unlike my husband, he was president of a family business. And so he, not that he dressed up to go to work because he, they worked in a automotive parts business, but he had 10 people that worked for him. So he just said he was gonna be in the warehouse that day. So I didn't think anything of it, kissed me goodbye and you know, told him that just as a reminder, we were meeting a friend for dinner who was coming in from Florida. He said, I'll be there. So, and I said, well, do you wanna pick me up or you wanna just, you know, meet me there. He said, no, you drive and I'll just meet you there. Well, I arrived at the restaurant and Joe was there and we started talking and we had a drink and we were waiting and like more than an hour went by. I kept trying to call Tony and there wasn't any answer. And then um, I finally called the concierge in our building. I said, you know, is my husband there? Have you heard from him? And he said, no, but a detective had been here looking for him and they want you to come home. And I'm going like, what, you know, sort of thing. And so when I got home, I tried to call my son-in-law, who's a police officer, 
And I tried to call my daughter and neither one of them answered the phone, which I thought was really kind of strange, but they didn't answer the phone. And I waited uh, in the lobby for my son-in-law to come and uh, it was an, more than an hour before he had gotten there. And he walked in with a man who was a detective and I started screaming like, what's going on? What's going on? And he said, no, we'll talk, you know, in my condo. And so I remember going upstairs and um, they sat me down on the sofa and the detective sat on one side and my husband, my son-in-law sat on the other side. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I can't believe it's bringing up so emotion. Even though it's you okay to tell the story? 20 so, years ago, yeah. Yeah. And so um, the detective said that your husband is dead. So my first thought was maybe it was a car accident. And he said, no, he said your husband shot himself in, in the head. I, go, I turned to my son-in-law and I go, this can't be true. And he said, it is true. And uh still in disbelief because he said my husband didn't even like guns and he said no that he actually ended up killing himself or his body was found in a veteran cemetery which I thought was kind of weird because um, he wasn't a veteran you know but his uncle had committed suicide and his uncle was in that veteran cemetery and so uh, my son-in-law called my daughter he had told her he had sent a police car for her and my granddaughter, who was only six months old. So he only told her that something happened to Tony, but didn't tell her what. So she didn't know what had happened until she had walked in the door. And then one, one by one family came, my sister, I went into a state of shock. Uh, I don't even know if I was aware of anything that was going on. My sister called a friend who was a doctor and he came over and gave medication and a prescription for more. And then, you know, I just went numb from that point. You know, I, I think one of the things that uh, people will find if they're contemplating suicide, if they, which somebody, you think about it every now and then, you know, but you don't go through with it for the most part. But I hope what people would gather from reading my book is that they will find out what the family goes through afterwards. And I think because it's a selfish act that they don't even think about that. And it's, it's a terrible thing. Yeah, you always, even though you have no responsibility as a friend, a lover, or a family member, that that person made that decision, you always take the responsibility as if it mm -hmm. is partly your fault. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, I had two family members commit suicide. One was a cousin and the other one was my father. And he had terrible health problems. And mm -hmm. finally, he got us both through college and then just didn't want, couldn't cope with it anymore. I can't imagine how horrible it must have been. But my mother was left wishing she had done something different. And mm -hmm. I don't think she could have done anything any differently either. So it's great if you can see the signs and you can help them get help because you never want to make somebody you love go through that. It's really horrific. And what I understand what you went through, although he was not my lover, he was my father and he, I am my father's daughter. Uh, uh -huh. We were two peas. I think we actually had a psychic relationship, but I had already gotten married, moved to the Bay Area. He was in Los Angeles. I didn't see uh -huh. him as often. So I, I didn't know it, any of this was going on. And uh -huh. when you're left, it's really horrible. And it takes... Uh -huh a long time to reconcile what happened to that person and to let go of the guilt that really you shouldn't have anyway because you couldn't have done yeah. anything about it. Well, the interesting thing is like, you know, when you keep a journal uh, and when I decided to keep a journal, I decided that it was going to be thin and it was going to be hardbound because I didn't want to have a thicker journal for a big commitment. And I didn't want to have a loose leaf pages that could be ready torn out. But in looking, at, looking back and reflecting, I see how God creates miracles in our lives. For example, uh, about two years after my husband died, I went to, to a place for a massage, a place where I had never been before. 
And when I was there, the woman started asking me questions just in general, you know, but I did end up telling her that, you know, I was a widow and my husband committed suicide. She gave me a business card and she said, you know, you should talk to this person. And I just took the business card, brought it home, threw it in a box on my kitchen counter with zero thought of, you know, doing anything with it. And then two years after that, I was uh, in that box and I pulled her card out and I called her up and I said, my name is Janet Grillo. You don't know me. Someone gave me your card two years ago. I'm supposed to talk to you and I don't even know why and I don't even know what you do. So she said, well, come and talk with me. Uh, she says, I'll tell you uh, about me. If you feel that I can help you, then you can pay for my services, but come find out about me. So when I went there to her, she actually worked at the church, but she was a grief counselor at the church and that wasn't recognizable on her card. So I would have you know, paid attention to that had it been there. But she told me that both her son and her mother committed suicide. So she was the first person that I could relate to. When people would say to me, I know how you feel, it made me very angry because they said, you have no idea how I feel and I pray to God that you never do. So she sat there and she asked me questions and she said, asked me if I wrote in a journal and I proudly sat up in my chair and said that I did. And then she asked me a question that changed my life forever. And she said, when you write in a journal, do you write to God? And I said, no, I never thought to do that. So that, this conversation happened before considering to become a Catholic. And so I left there and I went right to the bookstore. And like I said, I ended up buying a journal that was thin and hardbound because I didn't know what the commitment would be. And I remember the first writing in the journals because my handwriting was probably an inch tall because I had so much anger that was bottled up inside of me. But the interesting thing is as I wrote to God, as I wrote it, I felt it being released from my body, that it wasn't there, that I've taken that and I said, okay, this is a bunch of crap I'm gonna give you and you just take it because I don't want it anymore, just get it out. And so it's interesting because um, in reflecting back on the letters that God wrote to me. So let's reframe it. My husband died in 2001. On June 18th, 2004, God wrote a letter to me. And the letter said, know that I've chosen you to do a special task for me. One, I don't want you to take very lightly. One day you will write a book. And when that time comes, we will write it together. Through our words, you will bring many people to me. It'll be a great success for you, but a greater success for the lives that we've touched. And I will put the right people into your life to make it happen of which I replied, really, God, I was in Mr. Fox's remedial reading class in the seventh grade. Surely you could choose someone besides me. And the response that came back through my head and my heart is, no, I chose you. So I don't know why God chose me. I certainly don't try to be Holy Ghost Junior by any stretch of the imagination. But I know that when God chooses people, he chooses the weakest ones. He helps us get through that pain. He helps us endure. He helps us pull the lesson out of it. it. Our story helps other people to give them permission that it's okay. Not only is it okay to grieve, but you know what? Guess what? It's okay to move on with your life and you should not feel guilty about that. I look at it like my husband had to die in order for me to go through the traumas and the disappointments, the pain, you know, the betrayals, you know, that he had, that I had to go through that but I had to kind of let that go. The thing that was destroying me from the inside out, like I said, is the anger. Like every step I took, it was, it was very angry. And then years after my husband died, I was actually in Switzerland on business and it was years, but I found myself in the hotel room in a fetal position. And so I ended up going to a church and um, I went there and there was a young nun at the door and uh, I just went in and I just prayed. They had a life-size statue of um, the Piata with uh, Mary holding her son, Jesus. And I prayed there for a while and I came out and in her best broken English, she was trying to ask me what I wanted. And for whatever reason, I felt I needed rosaries. I didn't pray on the rosary, but at that point I needed rosaries. 
So she got the gist of that, but she ended up giving me the rosaries off of her belt, her sash. And it's uh, all hand carved wooden rosaries, which I refused to accept, but she insisted more. And then we went to the rectory to speak to the only English speaking priest that was there. And he wasn't there, but he did call me later that night and we did talk for several hours, but he realized that it was okay to forgive. But if you forgive someone, what you're doing is you're forgiving the person, but you're not necessarily forgiving the act. And so that was the thing. So I've learned to just kind of in my heart, just remember the good things and forget the bad things, you know, and, and don't um, concentrate on that at all. You know, God is all about love. And the only way that we can heal ourselves is through love. And the only way we can help other people and in turn helping ourselves is through love with a genuine interest in helping others get through their pain. I would imagine that over the 20 years, you've become a very different person than the woman who was Tony's wife in 2001 before he died. You were a, a very, a mm -hmm. yeah. A totally, diff totally different person. You know, that I uh, am constantly trying to work on myself you know, in order for me to be a spokesperson, uh, I realize that my life has to be more about transformation. So transformation of the mind, of the body, you know, I mean, as you get older, the weight comes on. It's always a struggle to do that. But I realize that I can't be defined by my weaknesses and just love me for my strengths. And you had time to spend on yourself to develop your strengths. And then yes. to give them as gifts mm -hmm. to others who needed them. Mm -hmm. So no, how did it, you get it, in? Go, go ahead. That no, no, go ahead. Through. Ask your question. How did you get involved with veterans and suicide with veterans? Well, that's an interesting point because I actually had the opportunity to be a freelance writer for Crown City News out of Sacramento. And for whatever reason, in conversation with the owner, I said, you know, one thing bothers me a lot. And I, I look at it like, how can you have say two veterans come home from war? Maybe they both lost their legs. What's the difference between one healing themselves and, um, and putting prosthetic legs on and running a marathon and then helping other people make a difference in their lives and the other becoming an alcoholic filled with depression, suicidal thoughts, and eventually commit suicide. And I truly believe that it's the difference of having God in your life. You know, the one that ends up committing suicide has totally given up on himself. That he just feels that he's defined or he, she is defined by what is left, not realizing uh, they look at the negatives of the lack of limbs or something like that and don't realize that they have something to give. And so uh, one of the things that I was doing when I had moved to Florida is I was interviewing veterans to tell their stories. You know, one story was comprised of someone who had actually tried to commit suicide three times and failed three times. And he found himself as and a veteran, you know, found himself uh, living in a cardboard box under a bridge uh, as a drug addict and selling drugs and everything. And then it was uh, his last time he had tried to kill himself was a wake up call. And so he ended up checking himself in. And actually today he owns his own computer repair shop. He's a motivational speaker. And sometimes he brings a box in with him to do that. But then what, the other person that I interviewed was a woman who was a gold star mom. So gold star parents are uh, parents of children and their children have committed suicide. So in this particular case, uh, I interviewed this woman. She introduced me to a man by the name of Howard Barry, who lives in Chicago. And Howard's son committed suicide as well. Howard started a display of flags because the average on average, there's 22 veterans that commit suicide every day, 660 a month and more than 7,000 a year. So Howard created a display of 660 flags. And in Florida, we have a miniature Vietnam wall that travels throughout the state. And that display of the 660 flags is also part of that display that travels around. So 
in telling my sister about the flags, she says, oh, I've seen a collection of flags, but I never knew what they meant. So I decided to go out and design a veteran suicide awareness flag that when people look at it, they'll know exactly what they went. So I went and I bought a life-size, you know, full-size flag and laid it on my living room floor and walked around it for months trying to figure out what the heck am I going to do to make a difference. So um, I started out with some hearts on the flag and I went, no, that's not it. So the, the end result of the flag is it still has the 50 stars on the flag, but 30 of the stars are actually um, have a number 22 on them. So if you take 30 times 22, that's one month of veterans death. In there, and then uh, the colors for suicide prevention are turquoise and purple. And so, within the American flag, I have two bands that are uh, turquoise stripes. And then, within that turquoise stripe, it says "Stop 22 Veterans Suicide Today." And that's how the flag came about. So, my goal is is to get the flag flown uh, beneath the American flag at every like VFW or veteran location in the United States. So, in order to do that. I need the help of many people to do that. And so uh, LinkedIn has been a very good source for me in contacting the people, which is great. And then as a result of that, I ended up uh, creating the nonprofit Journey of Hope Survivors. So my goal is, is that with through that foundation, you know, that I've set up to actually help finance to get those flags there. But here's an interesting thing. The interesting thing is I thought after, and it's, the flag is trademarked, and the interesting thing is that I thought, okay, the flag is trademarked. Let me contact Howard Berry to tell him that I'm taking his dream of what he started, you know, even further. So I didn't have success in reaching him. So I just re-Googled his name and everything, only to find out that he died. And the crazy thing is, is that he died on my birthday. And I thought, well, that's, for me, that's kind of God's sign telling me to continue his mission. You know, so you Very look at those little signs. Yeah, I, I have, I don't believe there's accidents. Things happen in an order for a reason, even mm -hmm. though they never make sense looking forward. They sure do make sense looking back. Absolutely. No question about that. So it's tremendous what you've done. And have you started your podcast? I, know I have you not to do a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I have not started my podcast, but I'm putting things in place to make that happen. So it, it'll be a while, but it'll be interesting because now, you know, being an author, you, it's not like you sell your book and you sell millions of copies and have lots of money coming in. But uh, for me, I work a full time job now. So doing all of that has to uh, filter in on the hours that I'm not working. And I can, I can do that like today, I'm off today. So it was easy to do the podcast with you today. Right, right. I wanted people to hear your story. What advice do you have for somebody who's gone through a tragedy? I don't think your tragedy is unusual so they won't have similar circumstances to you, but lots of people do lose loved ones to suicide. Mm -hmm. So what, what advice do you have for them? Well, the main advice is, um, first off, don't blame yourself. Don't blame yourself that you didn't see signs, because in my case, there were no signs. Um, you know, that's, that's the very first thing. Uh, allow yourself to grieve. But as even though I say there's no time li limit on grief, you have to put a time limit on it. And whether it's a year, you know, or two years, you know, start off with a shorter time versus the longer because it's okay to miss that deadline. But if you just step back and realize that you kind of have to work it on yourself and then just get involved doing other things, even if it's starting to walk, even if you look at yourself and say, I'm a disheveled mess here. What can I do to make it happen? You know, I look at it like, I, I just don't want to, in this situation, like where I would be is I wanting to now make a difference. I just don't want to die. And at the end of my death, not to have at least accomplished something to help other people. And now that you're saying suicide is on the rise, um, even though my book is titled Life for Survivors After Suicide, it's really life for survivals after any tragedy. And our, our world is unstable now. 
and more children are committing suicide. Uh, you know, they, they don't, as a child, I mean, it's worse, at least as an adult, as we've had the chance to experience things. But as a child, it doesn't get any worse than that, you know, and your family never gets over it. And, um, and just basically, it's, it's just work on yourself. Work on yourself and give you the time to find yourself. You know, by taking the walks and be out there with nature, look for the things that are around you that are good. And you have to focus on the positive and just do not allow any negatives to enter your life. If you allow those negatives to come in even a little bit, they'll consume you. So just uh, as soon as a negative comes in, just change it to a positive thought. And the crazy thing for me is that um, if, I, if I was having issues with anger, and I'm not one to read the Bible a lot, but, you know, but I would turn to the Bible in times of, you know, when I felt I needed it. So if I was having trouble with anger, I would just randomly open the book and believe it or not, there's a chapter on anger. If I was tr having trouble believing in myself, you know, then I would go and turn to something else. But it seems like the crazy part is, is that when you open the Bible randomly, it's exactly what you need. And you have to realize that if God did it for other people, he will do it for us as well. And, and we have to believe in that, you know, like because there's, uh, we are all built and born with innocence. And no matter what has happened in our life, that's the way God recognizes each and every one of us with innocence. We've all done things that we're not happy that we did or ashamed of or the way you treat people. But if you turn to God, it's going to be okay. But you have to just believe in yourself, which is very hard to do sometimes. And you have to believe that there's a higher power that wants to be there for you to help you through it. And if you don't believe in God, just pretend he's there. And it's okay to pretend because that pretending one day will become a reality. And you'll find that your life and the lives of all the people around you will be much better off. And it's okay to laugh again. It's okay to have fun, that you're not defined by uh, the circumstances around you, or you're not defined by someone else's actions that took, that took your, when they took your, their life, they also took a little bit of you with them too, you know, and that was the thing is, I questioned is, uh, had my life gone to the grave with my husband, you know, and those are some of the thoughts, that, and I realized years later, and I'm putting my story out there, I realized it didn't was just part of the piece of the puzzle that um, God has put together for me to help other people. And I pray that uh, many people will be healed by this. So you're living a good life now. You've come so far. Um, you have a granddaughter. Is she living close? Um, I'm in Florida and my granddaughter is in Delaware, but she goes to school at Marywood University in Scranton. And so she's 21 years old. So life has gone on. She was just six months old when this, when this happened, you know, so she doesn't really know anything about that, you know, as far as that's concerned. But, um, but no, I live, um, I live an amazing life. And in Florida, I live on the water. I have a, a natural wildlife preserve right behind me. I have cranes that visit me every day that are four feet tall, and I have my bird feeder out there, and if it's empty, they'll squawk out there until I go out and feed them, and they're like within just, they're just a, a couple feet from me, you know, and they have a little baby that comes along, and it's, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful life. I'm working with an amazing company, Holiday and Club Vacations in Cape Canaveral, and the company is by far one of the best companies that I've ever had the opportunity to be a part of, and I'm, I'm blessed with laughter every day. I'm blessed with meeting a lot of people. Uh, and it's it's crazy. People just open up their stories to me when I don't even ask for it. But when that happens, I just think it's part of God for them to mention something that, you know, makes me remind me of myself. Right. For sure. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, delighted that we had the opportunity to talk. I will put all of Janet's information under this podcast because I want you to have the opportunity to buy her book. Um, 
share it with anybody who you think would find value and find um, peace from reading her story because that's essentially what the book is all about. It was about her journey to finding peace within herself and with God. And I hope that someday we reach a point where depression and suicide is not a stigma. I have come to the conclusion that mental health is being out of balance, just being like being out of physical health is being out of balance. When you get balanced, then you bring your moods back into balance. And balance includes health, includes your spiritual life. Health includes everything. So don't be afraid to explore all the parts of yourself that are out of balance in order to get back into balance, especially if you're dealing with a health issue, which was my big issue, or you're dealing with a mental health issue, which mm. ended up being dropped in Janet's um, lap that she had no idea what's going on with her husband. So work, there is so much power you all have over yourselves. Don't be afraid to listen to my four podcasts that came before that, which will give you all kinds of ideas of all the different pillars of health that you can work on to come back into balance. And what you eat is also what your gut eats and that shoots up to your brain and your moods and can help bring you peace. And then you add the pillar of spirituality back in and you too can find balance and you have control over that. You don't have to get anybody else's permission to do that. So seek help if you need it, talk about it, let your loved ones know what you're going through and don't make it like it's a stigma because we need to reach a point where it's not. It is part of life and balance can be regained through a variety of different paths. And that's really what Janet's story is all about as well. Mm -hmm. So have anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, I just, I'm glad to have the opportunity to do that. If anyone wants to reach out for me, I'm also a motivational speaker. If you feel that I can be helpful in talking to large groups of people, just uh, reach out to me through my website and I'll be more than happy to do that. I'm very okay. accessible as far as that's concerned. Fantastic. And I strongly recommend her book. You feel like you're sitting in Janet's living room, letting her tell you her story. <laughs> so it's really a delightful book to read. So thank you yeah, so thank much you. for joining me today. It's my, it's my pleasure for sure. Thank you. Thanks to everyone and may God be with you. <laughs>